Chapter 8, once again, Romans chapter 8, let's continue to pray for Pastor and Vera as they travel, they'll be coming back tomorrow, and so pray for the Lord's health with all that, and direct their steps. All right, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to be once begin once again here in this chapter and look at two more of the questions that Paul gives in this section of chapter 8. And remember that these questions, they are doing something for us. You want to remember that these questions are not here to cause uh, any kind type of doubt or fear. And in fact, these questions are doing just the opposite of that. These questions are here to even help us with our fears and to give us security. These are securing questions for suffering believers. And that's us. That is us as we walk through this life. And as we <clears throat> as we look at these Questions, and as we think about these things that are written in Romans chapter 8, we do face a lot of fears in our lives. And those fears can come up in so many different ways. And these verses, again, as I mentioned, will address uh, those one of those fears and Uh, Let's get into it here. Let's read verses 33 and 34 to catch those. There's two questions here for us. And it's these. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Well, I think even as we read this, <clears throat> these verses, you can get a sense here of what could be one of those things that can cause us fears. And Paul gets into it here, what he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge? Will someone be able to launch an accusation against us that would stand in the court of heaven? You know, as we walk through this life, we can become very aware of just how sinful we are we can come to realize and sense that and know 
how sinful we can be. And we could, uh, there could be a fear there that would, uh, where we would think someone would be able to come against us. And in this sense, as Paul is writing this, he is saying this, that this are, there is a legal standing or charge against us. What would that legal charge be? Well, it could be uh, anything in the sight of God that would be sin against him. And, you know, when we think of, you know, who could be that one? Who could be the one that would do something like this to us? I mean, maybe we think of coworkers or neighbors, maybe family members, uh, maybe even the government or human judges. But really, all those are here on earth. And when we think about this standing, this, this charge, whatever it would be, it would have to stand um, in the court of heaven. It would have to be there um, eternally, really, to be able to be effective against us. And <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 12, you've got this verse where it says, Uh, Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Who is that one that stands before God and accuses the brethren? Well, I think you probably have already guessed who it is, and that is Satan. Satan stands before God, and he does this, and he accuses us day and night. We can see the example of what he did in the Old Testament. There was a man in the Old Testament named Job, who Satan came before God and accused Job of his wrongdoing. Now, Job, um, going through that, whole situation. He came out um, and we know the story there of God and before him, but Satan accused him. Peter was also another one where uh, Jesus said to Peter, you know, uh, Satan wants to sift you as he would wheat. And so we can, in, you know, in our sense, we know how sinful we are. And we can come to that point where we think, what is this going to stand before God? Are these accusations going to stand? Well, Paul here brings these questions to us. And he says there, you know, who will bring a charge against God elect, God's elect, God is the one who justifies. Then you've got this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we'll take these two questions one at a time. They really work together. And they, um, in these questions, in the end, 
as we understand them, they are going to solidify our security in Christ. Is there anyone out there who can bring a charge against us? Well, we would, we would, there's three different things here to take note of. And it is this. You've got in verse 33, this relationship that God has with those who have this charge against them, and that is that they are God's elect. God's elect. He has chosen them. There is election there. Then you've got this. God is the one who justifies. And then you've got this aspect of who is the one who condemns, and there is, a, as there is one who is given the authority to condemn, and we'll look at who that is. And then, of course, what who, uh, Christ and his relationship to us in that way. So, but first of all, let's look at this aspect of um, who will bring a charge against God's elect. Can that um, charge be brought against him? Well, let's think about what election is. What is election? And I don't intend to go into a real deep dive here of all that election is. But we could simply say that, God, that election is God's choice. It is God's choice of those um, whom he has, and we're going to see this, foreknown. And to do this, let's look at a couple passages. Um, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, pastor has, in his series, and this has been a while since he's been here, but um, talked about this aspect of election. But let's just look here at verses 3 and 4 to see this stated out clearly and plainly for us about this aspect of election. And it's this, in Ephesians 1 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And we can see here a couple of things about election. That election is all about being chosen in Him, that is, in Christ. And not only that, but it's also the timing of it was before the foundation of the world. Remember, we have talked about a couple of those theological truths that happened in eternity past, back in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, um, in verse 29 and 30. Let's also go to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1 also has uh, some details here about election. 1 Peter chapter 1, these first couple verses. And Peter there is writing, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen 
That is our word there for election, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And here you can see that the choosing or election is tied to something. It's tied according to the foreknowledge of God. And election and foreknowledge have this uh, tie together. There is this relationship. We would say that we would say our election, that is, God's choosing us is based on his foreknowledge of us. And the foreknowledge is part of that golden chain, as I was mentioned, uh, that we saw in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. So that since God has foreknown us, he has done all of the things that are mentioned in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And all of those things then truly do secure us. And so let, let's just look there at those verses and um, remind ourselves of them again. Where in Romans chapter 8, in 29... Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so to to kind of back out again and give us that perspective is remember that what God is doing is he is working in our lives so that we, along with Jesus Christ, are glorified. And in our glorification, in Christ's glorification, we are all, all is glorifying God the Father. And so in eternity past, he determined that this would take place. And he he determined and he foreknew certain ones that then, in that foreknowing of those, that all these things would, would take place. The predestination, the calling, the justification, and the glorification. All those things would take place in those that he had foreknown. And another element or another aspect of this is the fact that he chose them. In fact, that is tied up with that whole aspect of foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, and here's a definition of that again. Foreknowledge is God intimately knew or set his covenant affection, that is love, on certain individuals beforehand. That is, God personally committed to individuals before they even existed. So he set, he chose to set his love on certain individuals. And in that, he personally committed to those individuals before they even existed. So election, when we talk about this aspect of being chosen, it's we belong to God. We stand in his presence as chosen. 
And if we are chosen in Him, that is in Christ, or we're chosen in Christ, then who is going to bring an accusation against God's chosen ones? He has done it. He has been the one to choose. And we can stand secure in Him, even as this, even what you've got in this question, even the answer to the question, right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? We are secure in Him. But not only that, we have this reality too, and that's the second thing here, is that who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So you've got this great aspect of election, and you also have this aspect of justification. And when these accusations come, it's in the context, or it must be understood, that God is the one who is the justifying one. So, if we are chosen of God, since we have been chosen of God, we have been justified. God is the one who justifies. He's the one that declares someone righteous. And the definition of justification would be this. Uh, Justification is a righteous declaration that we, ungodly in ourselves, stand entirely righteous before Him. So that even though we are ungodly, we stand righteous before Him. And and the, the whole aspect of this is the fact that we are unrighteous. We have sin in us. And the passage that really de- delineates this for us is in Romans chapter 3. If you go back and, and let's turn there for a minute. Romans chapter 3. Paul here is giving to us this aspect of righteousness and what is not righteous. If you look there in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says very plainly, and he's quoting the Old Testament, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. You know, we might be tempted to think, well, back in history, there must have been somebody righteous. Somewhere along the way was righteous. But the reality is that there is no one who is righteous. And if you're wondering about it, not even one. And that righteousness surrounds the fact <clears throat> that, you know, when we, when we talk about this or think about it, uh, we, we come to think, well, we're unrighteous because of the deeds that we do. And that is true. But Paul here, even in this passage, he points out the fact that it starts or it's all, it's kind of surrounded with our tongue. He goes on, verse 11 through 13, talking there about there is none, and it emphasizes that aspect of no one. 
But in verse 14, or, or excuse me, 13 there, he says, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's like all of the unrighteousness <clears throat> is seen by what is heard. That what comes out of the mouth is what testifies to the unrighteousness in us. And, you know, we could give testimony to this probably personally and others where you just have this aspect where when, when something gets stirred up in you, what's one of the first things that happens? Well, out of your mouth comes that aspect of unrighteousness. And that is seen in our, our lives. And so we're unrighteous because of our deeds, but also uh, even more so because of our words. There is within us unrighteous thoughts and desires. And there is this disposition within us, and it just comes out as, it, as we see our selfishness. And <clears throat> to emphasize this helps us because if we're going to appreciate justification, we have to appreciate the fact that we are, number one, unrighteous. And so here you've got <clears throat> the depths of unrighteousness, and then God then declares you or declares us legally righteous. Now, in our hearts and minds, we might say, well, that's, that's unfair. That's unjust. Why would God, uh, you know, declare something like that. Well, it comes because of someone that became our righteousness. Or excuse me, it became our unrighteousness, and we then have his unright his righteousness. <clears throat> and if we turn then to another passage, let's go to Second Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of this truly unbelievable, amazing work of God that delineates for us and let's help us understand what this um, justification is all about. And Paul here then says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, He made... Him. Now, who's the he and who's the him in this verse? Well, the first he is God the Father. And the second, in the next one, him, he made him, that is Jesus Christ. So God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what we needed, we, what we have is this unrighteousness, and Christ is righteous. And what we need is this exchange. We need 
His righteousness made to us. And the only way that God could, in justice or in a just way, do that is when He would take the righteousness, our unrighteousness, and account it unto Jesus Christ, and then take Christ's righteousness and account it to us. And that is the only legal way that that could take place. And this verse is that beautiful statement of God doing that for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is truly a part here of this aspect of what it is that we have in Christ by his work in us that we might be uh, made. So here's the question again, right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So if he's the one to justify, no accusation can stand. None. It is all on him. You know, we actually have a wonderful example of this in our Old Testament. If you go to Zechariah, actually go back in the Old Testament here, back to Zechariah, and look at an example of this. And we're going to go to chapter 3 there. And here's a situation. Zechariah uh, and Haggai were raised up uh, by God to help rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. And they're, uh, they're with um, the people and they're encouraging them. And you've got this here uh, instance in the middle of Zechariah that um, sheds some light on what is going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. Here in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So this is, where is this? Is this on earth or is this in heaven? This is in heaven. And it's kind of, you're seeing, um, like I said, behind the scenes. And you've got Satan standing at his right hand. And what is Satan doing? He is accusing him. He's accusing Joshua. And you've got here then the Lord saying something to Satan. Well, what does he say? It says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Does that sound a lot like what we read there in Romans chapter 8 about God's choice? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That's what his statement is. Now, verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel of the Lord. So, is Joshua guilty? And do the accusations that Satan bring before God, are they real? They are real. 
And they are there. But the Lord, he says, you know, he has chosen Jerusalem and in a sense chosen Joshua as well. And then it says in verse 4, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. Those dirty garments that Joshua had taken away. And instead, what does Joshua get? Festal robes. The robes, as it were, cleansed by God himself. Then I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And then it goes on to talk about more admonitions uh, there. But you've got there that, that, I, that is an illustration of you know, filthy garments being taken away and instead you've got these other robes being given instead. And that is <clears throat> like what we're talking about here. Justification. That our unrighteousness on Christ and Christ's righteousness credited to our account legally. And that's how it stands. And no one, if one has been justified, who can bring an account against that one? And the answer is no one. And that is securing to us because we, even as believers, sin. We sin against God and we fall short and do sin. And sometimes it might see, it seems like it's on and on and on and on. But who is the one who justifies? God is the one who justifies and we stand before him elect, chosen in him. This is part of our security. And not only that, we come to the third thing here then, and that is, who is the one who condemns? All right, so who is the one who condemns? Paul uh, gives that question there in verse 34. Who's the one that's given the authority to judge? Is it someone here on earth? Is it someone that God has uh, delegated that authority to uh, a relative of yours, family member? Or is it someone here in our government? How about earthly judges? Like, who is the judge? In all of this, who's the one that's going to, that has the authority to condemn? Well, let's look and discover that in uh, the scriptures here. And let's look, turn to um, some verses. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be, like I said, turning here to several passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 
You get the statement and the reality right away. And here Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Of Christ. And if you look back in the Gospels, Christ has a statement about this. He talks about this aspect of judging. And if you go to John chapter 5, we're going to look there at a specific example or a specific statement of Christ and what he said in relationship to his position before the Father and his position before others. In John chapter 5 and verse 21, <clears throat> he said this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And when, he's, when Jesus is talking like this, he's referring to the Son, and he's referring to himself. If you look down in verse 26, he says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We could go also to Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. There you've got another message, another uh, preaching. Peter, as he is preaching to um, Cornelius. And in verse 42 and 43... Uh, Peter there says, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who is appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then you've got one other passage, and I'll just read it here for you, 2 Timothy 4.1 where Paul there says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Um, and, uh, and the dead. And that is his statement there about who is, uh, that Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. And so we've got this very clear statements here that Jesus Christ is the judge. He is the one who is going to be the one that will condemn at the judgment. But here's the reality. Here's, here's some more uh, reality about Christ and his position. Now, he is the judge. Someday he is going to judge all and condemn, and justify. But here, <clears throat> what did Jesus do when he came to earth? Well, 
Just, just let your mind in, in Christ's first coming. Think of him. Let your mind think through while he was here. Right? He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He was baptized by John. He worked miracles. He chose disciples. He taught them. He preached to thousands and to thousands of people. And you, you've got this interaction. Here, the Son of God, he's with people and he's walking among them. And what is he doing? Well, <clears throat> he's doing all those things. And in John chapter 3, you've got this statement um, to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, and we know this, this verse 16 very well, right? So he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged. Uh, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. When, When Christ came, and he was among people, and he walked here on this earth, and he's healing people, and he's preaching to thousands, he says to Nicodemus, look, I did not come to judge. That was not, his mission was not to judge at that time. What was his mission? His mission was to save people from sin and deliver from darkness. His mission was to save people. Those people who believe in him are saved. They're safe and they will not be condemned. Now we do know, as we just looked at this, Jesus will be the judge in the end. Finally, someday. And that is his right. And that is what he will do. But in his right now, he is uh, saving people. And as judge, so someday he will be judge. And our current position, so the question is, who is the one who condemns? Who is that one? Here's how Paul answers that question. It's like this. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes. Rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. So what you've got here is is this combination of the fact that, you know, the accusation about bringing a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justified. Well, who is the one that's going to condemn? Well, that is Jesus Christ. But here's Paul's answer. He died. The judge died. The judge was raised. The judge is at the right hand of God, and that same judge intercedes for us. That's how Paul answers that question. And so let's go through those things. God, the Jesus Christ, the judge, he died on behalf of God's elect. And you might say to yourself, the judge died? 
So why did he die? Well, he died to be or to take on and suffer the death penalty. He was condemned. Right? And we go back to that same verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He was condemned. And he became our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He being the judge came down and became the substitute for us. He died on our behalf of all those that would believe in him. If the judge becomes the necessary substitute for that unrighteousness, for that sin, all accusations cease and none are remembered. He righteously makes righteous the unrighteous. He is the just and the justifier. No one can point a finger at you and make any accusation stick because Jesus Christ, he's the judge. And the judge died for you. You are forever safe. You are forever safe in him. The wrath of God was satisfied. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about this, and he talks about how Christ became a propitiation uh, in his blood. Or, uh, <clears throat> And this was, and let me just read the verses here. Uh, Romans 3, 24 says, "...being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed." For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, so that he would be the just, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the one who has faith in him is justified. And it is all done in a righteous manner. It is legally satisfying to God. So whoever brings an accusation against you must bring that accusation to the judge. So let him bring it to the judge. The judge who set the penalty paid the penalty for those whom God shows. It is possible to bring any charge that will condemn. It's absolutely impossible. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8. He says... Christ Jesus, it is he who died, yes, who rather was, here's the second thing, raised. He was raised. Why is that important? Well, that's important because it vindicates, it shows that the work of God or work of Christ was satisfactory in God's sight. And so God raised Jesus from the dead. 
And by his resurrection, we all see that and say, that man, Jesus Christ, did exactly what he said he would do. And God vindicates him and shows him that, yes, this is true. This is his son. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. His death would have meant nothing if he had not been raised. But the reality was, he was raised. So he was, he died, he rose, and now Jesus Christ, the judge, is sitting at the right hand of God. And Paul mentions that. His resurrection was accompanied by his exaltation. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, Christ there is sitting at God's right hand. And it's interesting that, that that position of sitting is wrapped up in the reality that it's all about being finished. He finished the work. Hebrews 10, 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, his authority is unmatched and unquestioned. And no one can reach him to unseat him or take away his people because he is in heaven, sitting at that right hand of God. So no, so. Jesus Christ, the judge, he died, he rose, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and now this fourth thing is beautiful, and it just keeps climaxing. It says this, he who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's interceding for us. The judge interceding on our behalf. And his intercession is based on his atoning death as he sits as high priest in the heavens. And Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If the judge is the one who intercedes on behalf of another, how can any accusation stand? Paul just keeps piling it up for us. Jesus Christ is the judge. If the judge dies and is raised and is seated at the place of authority and interceding for us, How can anyone, anywhere, condemn us? The reality is this. You are uncondemnable. It is so sure. It is so settled. 
there is no way that we can be condemned. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And as we go through whatever trial and suffering that we are walking through, and as we think of this aspect of our being chosen, justified, and as we think about the judge, we can be settled in him. We can be settled in him. And you can just let your spirit relax and trust in him. Because even as we saw, even this morning, everything, all these things, he's working and doing in our lives. They're ours. And Paul gives us this security in him. So as we are walking, as we are living uh, in this life and face whatever it might be, that we can trust and have that security in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these verses that... Uh, delineate for us all these things that uh, help us in this time, in this life, that we might keep our eyes upon you and be encouraged in you and find our security in you. For you are good, Father. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, all that he has done, all that he is, and that intercession even now for us on our behalf. Lord, thank you for all these things. We praise your name, and we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.